0: The Sustainable Care team is exploring how care arrangements currently in crisis in parts of the UK can be made sustainable and deliver wellbeing outcomes. In this Sustainable Care and COVID-19 podcast series, our researchers and special guests discuss how the pandemic has impacted the different parts of the care sector we are studying. project, Achieving Sustainability in Care Systems, the Potential of Technology, part of the Sustainable Care Programme, we conducted stakeholder consultations that took place during the COVID-19 pandemic, starting in early spring and with a second round of consultations in the winter. What was evident from our findings was that for much of the adult social care sector and the technology-enabled care sector, this pandemic has been a real catalyst for change. This podcast will explore the impact of the pandemic on the way technology is being used throughout the adult social care sector. My guest is Mark Allen, Head of Technology Enabled Care at Hampshire County Council, and he's going to give us some insight into how one local authority used technology during what was and is a time of unprecedented change and demand. So maybe we could start by talking about the context. Can you tell the listeners about how Hampshire County Council was deploying technology in adult social care pre-pandemic?
1: Hi, Kate. Yeah, um, we, I can, actually. We've we've got a fairly well-established partnership that we developed since about 2012-13 with a consortium called Archente. Um, the focus of that has been on delivering technology in the care setting, so uh, enabling us to uh, blend that in with uh, tradi- more traditional forms of care. And that's been very much focused on social care, so delivering to people who have an eligible care need, Uh, And that ranged from the sort of more traditional sort of telecare approach, uh, but moved on to using a great array of technology, including sensors and things like that, as well as the Amazon Alexa. Uh, We ran a fairly good trial of that a number of years ago, and we'd done some work around uh, social isolation as well. So we've got a fairly well-established care technology platform that we were using, and that enabled us to actually respond fairly well to the pandemic.
0: Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about how maybe this had to change during the pandemic? What you had to add on or enhance of, of what was already a really well-developed service you were providing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there were a number of things there really was, was firstly, the challenge of delivering services to people living in the community and the, the whole issue that, that from March 2020 um, sprang up about how do we start to carry on delivering these services, because most of it is in other, is in people's homes. So we were having to cope with that sort of platform about how do you do something that's a quite a personalised service that requires a direct assessment in somebody's home and then an installation of equipment in, that, in those environments to support those people. So there was the whole challenge around BA, um, ensuring people were prepared to accept people in, in coming into their homes to install and assess. So we had to make some changes around... Um, how that actually worked and make sure that the people working in those environments were actually safe to do so. So these were some of the guys along with our domiciliary care providers, home care providers, um, were still out there delivering services. So it, it presented us with a number of challenges, just how to keep that service running and maintain it and the quality and the type of service that was there. There were also other things that sprang up for us, which were just purely COVID-related. So there were, there were issues around how do we actually support the workforce to deliver services more effectively. But equally, we started to see new calls on our on our resources to working in different ways. So as an as a top tier authority, um, we had the responsibility to to manage, along with our public health colleagues, the shielding population, for example. And a number of those people would be known to us. Lots more would be known to the NHS, but there would be others which who were peripherally known to the NHS and not at all to us. And the numbers were significantly higher than the numbers of people we would support on a day-to-day basis. Um, equally, we had issues around how do we manage people that were being passed out of hospital, discharged from hospital at a fairly quick rate, um, with fairly low levels of information about those individuals. So the, these sorts of challenges really sprang at us. And the numbers were quite significant and the response times or required response times were quite tight too.
0: So how did you manage that shielding population?
1: Um, that's a really interesting question. And I think initially the, the response was we set up a, a welfare team internally in the council, um, which was headed up by a colleague of mine. And and that was very human based, which it obviously would be. And we linked together with the um, uh, district and borough councils. But alongside this, we were starting to consider how we could get more information about those people that were being discharged from hospital. So often being discharged within four hours. And so, you know, the the information flows in those sort of timescales reduced quite significantly. So I I started having discussions with PA Consulting about, actually, how could we start to gather information from individuals where we knew very little and we needed to establish whether they had care needs or not, all these sorts of things. And we started to look at how we could potentially do that on an automated basis. So could we start to use technology to gather information? PA Consulting are also a development partner with Amazon Web Services, AWS. And the happy coincidence there of some of the AI technology that Amazon used was, was being looked at by PA. And we started to think about that in terms of the hospital discharge. Happily, some other solutions came up around that. Um, but what did start to spring to mind was, was actually this is a system. If we linked it to the Amazon's capability of making the Amazon Connect, I think it's called, and their ability to sort of contact people through various, various means, could we use that to actually start to ask some of the basic questions our um, shielding population were being asked? Um, and that was often via a, a team, or it's not just a team, it was an army of people making phone calls. Um, I sat and did that for one day over the Easter period, and I think I got through something like 20 calls in a day. And to give you some context, the numbers that we were looking at at the height of the shielding um, period, were 53,000 people shielding. So my contribution for that day's work of um, making calls was um, slightly minuscule, but it gives you an indication of the size of the tasks that we had about contacting all these individuals. And we, we needed to make sure that all of those individuals were contacted in some way to ensure that they were self-well and that their needs were being met, and those needs could be very basic in in terms of accessing shopping, food, and contact with other people. So as part of that whole process, we started to think, could we use the um, AWS Connect and the back end of the AI back end? Could we start to use that to support that whole process of making that first contact with individuals? It was really interesting because we, we actually came to the conclusion that, yes, we did want to do that. Uh, and I think we stood the whole thing up in two weeks. Um, so PA's developers in Northern Ireland worked on it quite hard to actually put together the, the sort of the, the workflows through the, the contact and used um, a human voice to deliver it. So it was actually one of the partners of the developers in Northern Ireland. So we had this very nice Northern Irish accent asking the questions. And so it wasn't a computer generated voice, it was a human voice, but controlled by AI, and that led, led, enabled us to ask a range of questions, which meant that depending on the answer, flows would go through to various places. So if people needed to talk to a human being because their, their issues are complex or that they actually just wanted to talk to a human being, that would happen. If they were reporting to us everything was fine, that was okay, but we would record that they we would come back and talk to them in the future what it gave us was a significant capability in terms of contacting people and 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 it's that's that it's that first contact point that was was the important thing to establish what the baseline of those individuals were it also meant that if people did require further services we could pass them on to the, our district and borough colleagues who were manning the more volunteer based services
0: thanks i think that's really important wasn't about replacing people it was about enabling you to use the people you had in the most effective way because as you say fifty three thousand people to contact would have taken you an awful long time with the staff you had and ultimately those who did need to speak to a real person did get to speak to a real person probably quicker than they would if you'd left it to you know the existing staff you had to make those first calls
1: absolutely I think the interesting thing is is, is because we had a, a fairly well established platform to go from, we've, we've had really good principles that we've developed over the years in terms of using technology in social care. And I think one of the really important things for us was, was that we, we needed to blend that into the, to the care offer, that all the technology we use and deploy in terms of what we're doing on a day to day basis. It's never done done as a standalone thing. That it's always done as part of a complete approach to working with people, and that will be blended with home care. And so, the support that that people get at home through use of technology is to enable them to live independently at home, and will supplement the home care that they receive or other services they receive. And those other services may be from an unpaid carer, so it may be supporting a family member too. I think we took that approach into this, which was. It won't be the only thing. It is an enabler to us to, to work with people and pass them on to the appropriate place. So when designing this, the workflows were really clear that, they, that it had to flow through to people if people that's what people needed and wanted. So there was always that pathway through to that. There was never, there were never dead ends for that. Um, what we found in most cases is people were just really pleased to get the contact. And that what we got was that people were saying on largely, no, we're fine, we're okay. And that's exactly what I found on the calls that I made. Were that the vast majority of people were saying, no, we're okay, we're okay for now. We know the number. we need to call you, we will, but thanks for calling. And we got the same sort of response to that. I think we did we did follow-up surveys and we asked some people didn't like it, inevitably, but that was a quite a small minority, very, very small minority. The vast majority of people that that responded to to the questions that we were asking just found it a really good. They felt, you know, positive that it was a good, friendly voice, and that actually that the council was making the effort to actually even contact them in this time. Because most of these people, fifty-three thousand people, you know, be completely honest, most people in their daily lives have very little to do with the council, and so when there was a, a period of, you know, national pandemic and emergency in some senses. It was it was useful to be able to contact people to reassure ensure them that there, there was a structure there that was there to provide support. But we were able to do it in a very smart way that meant we could very effectively contact um, and get the views of a significant number of
0: people. I was going to ask actually, were you able to capture people's feedback and change? Because I think when there is a time of crisis and you have to move quite quickly, it is hard to build in that sort of... The feedback groups or the evaluation so it is good to hear that you've managed to speak to people and find out what they did like or didn't like and based on that what, what do you think you're going to take forward from this
1: um i think that there are some interesting things is is that forms of ai are very useful but they've got to be inappropriate uh, and you've always got to have routes through to people for people to talk to to people if they want to if they need to. i think one of the issues was, was that. These things, there's there a lot behind it. They're incredibly useful. They're, they're just very, very good quality tools to use to contact people. I think in terms of the sort of commercials, for example, they work on a large scale. On smaller scales, they become much more expensive because they've got to be programmed and developed, and so there's developer time behind all of this. But what we found is, is if you do it in an appropriate way, people respond positively. So, you know, there are the opportunities to look at these sorts of things, for for example, to undertake a first stage review of people's care packages, be, be asking them, is everything okay? Are there things you want to change? Do you need to talk to somebody? Those sorts of questions, but they're not useful for highly complex conversations. So I think thinking about it clearly and blending it with more, more complex work is a useful way of doing it. Doing it just as an end in itself is probably not the best way of doing this. And I think that's what always worries me when when we start talking about using technology, because there always is the temptation to think it's a a standalone thing that that will deliver you the answer. And it never is. You have to have a system of being able to integrate human action and also learn from it and respond to it. All of these things are important terms of developing approaches to using technology and certainly in this setting anyway
0: yeah, i think that's something that, that really came through in our research as well that there's there can be a bit of a trend towards wanting to do a, look to be innovative and that is often being quite technocentric and focusing on the technology as the solution which as you say ignores all the important things that it's embedded within and the fact that you off you know it it requires people to make it work you need it to be assessed appropriately it needs to be installed appropriately you need to be supported to use it there needs to be routes through to speak to people ultimately because sometimes that's what people really need i just wondered if you could ref- if you were able to sort of reflect on what the sector as a whole might learn from the pandemic with, with, with regard to technology
1: yeah i th- i think I think some of the learnings are that there's a range of opportunities to develop and blending in technology into care provision and into that divide crossover to health and care. Um, I don't think that's an area that's actually been exploited as much as it could, that sort of crossover. I think there is there is an issue of actually the best technologies that actually were really successful were answered, were addressing a challenge, not the other way around. We didn't think about, oh, that's a nice piece of technology. What can we do with it? We actually had a lot of challenges. And and the, the, the things that really worked well and worked speedily and got everybody thinking clearly were in response to those challenges, where we had to find results, where we had to find a solution. And So we didn't come at it with a predetermined technological answer. It was actually, we've got this massive issue. We had 53,000 people that needed contacting. We started doing it in a very traditional way to begin with, but we found actually we, we needed a solution to this because, you know, those people, some of them will really, really depend on us, but we don't know who they are today. So that then enabled us to start thinking about actually when a solution, when, when a potential solution came up, we were able to think about it very clearly in the context of the challenge that we faced, not about the capabilities of the technology. And for me, that was one of the really clear lessons of that. And it supported the approach we've always taken, which was actually what is the problem you're trying to address and what are the outcomes you need to be seeing delivered before you start to think of the technological solution? And I think for me, that's one of the big lessons of COVID, was that there are always these challenges that face us and that we actually need to be addressing them and that technology can be part of the solution and not the other way around.
0: Thank you Mark. Those are all my questions. Um, It was great to speak to you and hear about Hampshire's experiences. It's a pleasure. I'd like to now turn to the technology-enabled care sector and explore how it's been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The technology-enabled care sector, of course, includes technology designers, manufacturers and providers, but also associated assessment, installation, monitoring and response services. The Technology Enabled Care Services Association is the industry and advisory body for this sector. And I'd like to welcome Alison Scarefield, their Chief Executive, to this podcast. Hello, Alison.
2: Hello, Kate. I'm really pleased to be on this podcast today. Um, we've done a lot of learning.
0: Fantastic. And, and so are we during the, the, the Sustainable Care Programme. And, and the, the, our fieldwork ended up happening over the pandemic. And what, what we've sort of found is broadly there is sometimes... An overly technocentric focus on technology in in adult social care, you know, there's often a focus on the, the latest kits and gadgets, and, and this is in policy discourse, but also, you know, academics have a, can do this too. And it it to me neglects the importance of services and systems that ultimately make technologies, caring technologies. Without these services and systems in place, it, it, they're just they're just bits of kit, aren't they? Really, so. I mean, I'm struggling to think of a standalone piece of kit that doesn't involve some sort of service, either to install it, assess for it or respond to it. And I think the pandemic really highlighted the importance of these services and systems and the people involved in them. So I'd like to just ask you to tell us a bit about the impact of the pandemic on some of those services who are TSA members and and how it made providing that vital support a little bit more challenging.
2: Yeah, no problem, Kate, and I think this was a loud and clear message that we've had in the sector for many, many years. My background is not um, in technology, um, in service and, and delivering real outcomes for people. So when the pandemic hit, it, it really shone a light on technology enabled care services out there who are delivering services to 1.8 million people in the communities. Now, we all learned different things, didn't we, in our profession, in our everyday lives. We had to all change new ways of working, new things of doing how we lived day to day. And I think the pandemic did shine a light on all of those vulnerable people out there, those shielding people in our communities who are needing support. And I think we really should keep remembering when we use technology, we did use technology in in COVID, but we all need to live meaningful lives. We need to do the things in communities that we all love with the people that we love, surrounded. And you know, if we have a disability, or we're age, or we're getting older, or we've got mental health issues, well they're exactly the same in the communities and they had the same needs in COVID. And I think what we've seen was incredible. Like everyone else, as we clapped them and applauded them, our health service, our care service on a Thursday evening, there was the tech service that rallied their troops. They were quite incredible in terms of the technology providers, the service providers, 24 hours a day there, every day of the pandemic. And yes, we seen the 35% reduction in staffing, which was really difficult. We had to repurpose, we had to retrain, we had to look at other people who were, not necessarily not working, but people in a local authority that could come and support those frontline services. So there was a need for immediate training resources digitally. There was a need for new guidance, new call triages, everything that they needed to keep the organization sustainable, delivering services frontline. I think, but what we see, in the Department of Health supported us with an outreach programme and we contacted and were in contact one-to-one with 92%, not of members, but of the tech service providers across the UK. And I think what that gave us was we were able to help them with their sustainability plans, their business continuity plans, although as certified members, quality members of service, we, we, you know, business continuity, that bit of the pandemic hadn't really hit us so hardly. So it was all new to everybody. And we had to react really quickly to keep all of those services going. But I think what we've seen was there was issues with the platforms, analog to digital has been around for a long time, but the non-digital platforms was really difficult for some of the organisations to have homework working, to be flexible in their f- approach to their staffing. But we did see some organisations such as Beeld Housing, they had digital solutions and they were able to react really quickly and 100% of their staff teams work from home within weeks of the pandemic hitting. That's including their monitoring center, everyone. And a lot of them are still working from home and flexibly, which is fabulous. But I think what we learned was the analogue to digital shift and that tech connectivity. We need to execute it really, really quickly. And we've talked about it for a lot of years. But in reality, commissioners and people purchasing services didn't really get the impact and COVID shone a light on that. So what we did see in COVID is there was a massive increase of people purchasing services for the next of kin. So somebody down the far end of the country with a relative up in the Northeast, or even people in communities that couldn't get out to see their relatives were seeing oh, a 25% uplift of self-funders, carers, and individuals buying new services, which is quite incredible. And that's sustained through the period of COVID. And then we've seen some fabulous exemplars where in the initial stages of COVID, everybody had a problem. The 24 hour services were bypassed. And then we created all of these big call centers when we had services in the community 24 seven, able to access calls. Now in Carmarthenshire in Wales, we use an example where Delta wellbeing, a front door to social care, started to do all of the outreach that were part of their disaster plan with their health authority with the chief execs of the local authority and the md of that telecare provision worked collaboratively to service the shielding in the communities and what was quite incredible with that offer you know it was the shielding services the medication linking into community resources um and you know having a strength based approach to some of the delivery that they delivered Before COVID, that particular service stopped about 7% at the front door and avoided onto social care services, more, you know, um, funded services in a social care setting. But what was incredible in COVID, that rose to 41%. Now, the reason for that is we had communities working together. We had collaboration with the tech 24-hour services, and they collaborated to deliver a one-stop shop for the shielding people in the communities. Now we heard a conference from their minister who invested in these services um, that that's now level playing at 33%. So we're seeing people in communities self-managing their health and well-being, which is absolutely fantastic. We've seen a brilliant example of using AI in chatbots in Hampshire. They have 53,000 people to service and immediately Within weeks, they were servicing all of their 53,000, but people that had done the pre-work, people in their communities, were used to using digital tools and they they'd just seen it as a norm. And what, what incredible, um, the team were telling me that only 2.1% of people needed escalation into a person in social care. Now, you start to see the picture of how we can use technology in a really meaningful way but focused on a a person's outcomes and their needs in the community. The last example that I really found compelling was telehealth in Liverpool and MerseyCare. In MerseyCare, they had lots of shielding nurses, so they had a huge volume of remote monitoring, working with video conferencing, oximetry at home, and they were able, I think within two weeks, they trained all of the shielding nurses in Liverpool to then work virtually on their telehealth service. That's absolutely fantastic, because I think previously telehealth was the unknown gem. People didn't really embrace it. All GPs in Liverpool prescribed for telehealth. And you just think these services pre-COVID had something different, not just technology. They had really strong leadership, vision, workforce. They really looked at their workforce from leaders in, in, say, Hampshire, right through to the frontline staff where they embraced a digital first. The key thing that makes these, all of these great things work and deliver outcomes for people in the communities is those strong enablers, interoperability of people and systems community engagement leadership workforce let's not focus on the shiny kit we've talked about it for so many years and it's so tempting and we've seen it so many times in COVID systems running out and buying a bunch of kit but then they didn't put it into the system they didn't have the culture didn't have the responder services to respond to the activity so it makes it really difficult to go this kit doesn't work it's really not sometimes the kit that doesn't work it's that whole enabling system that needs to come together and in 2019 we did a lot of work with CQC, with some of our commissioners, with some of our strategic leaders. And we put a leadership report together that said, there's key, three key principles of successful deployment of technology. And the first is data. Pre-COVID, we had huge amounts of data, we were data rich, but what we were was intelligent poor. And I think the two other elements that we really need to think about is people across the system, people, whether it be your leadership, right through to your frontline staff, right through to the volunteers that are supporting you with some of the work. And I think the big thing that made all those three examples work in COVID was that partnership. Um, And if we get those three elements right, you start to see that you see system change and people's lives are changed in communities. Thank you. That's
0: Yeah, I think those examples are really powerful and and something that reflecting on the importance of people in these systems and if if you you focus too strongly on the kit you ignore these people and they become invisible and when people are invisible then they're sort of underappreciated and i think perhaps that's an area during the pandemic where maybe you can talk about what the tsa did around key worker status for some of these people working in these services
2: yeah, it was really difficult when we first, you know, in, in week one to week six, and everybody was struggling for PPE. Um, part of the telecare service and the technology-enabled care service is, is a responder service 24-7. So they go into clients' homes and response to that emergency, that transaction, somebody could be on the floor. Um, they really struggled. They weren't seen as a valuable workforce in the community. So... Um, We have Paul Burstow as our chair, and we have um, Sir David Pearson as the tech quality chair. We lobbied government to make sure that the tech sector workforce, their installation teams, which were invaluable in the responder services, got key worker status. That was just invaluable because immediately with that, they were able to get the PPE that they needed the responder services were suspended for weeks because we, it was too much risk to the service user and to the employee who didn't have the protection that they needed. But because of that, though that workforce was applauded every Thursday. They were recognised in a way that they should, which we, we, we can thank the pandemic if, we, if we're going to thank anything because it really gave us some recognition But then when we started to look at the vaccine program, we didn't then have to do that again because that workforce was recognized as key workers. And they got the vaccines really quickly so they could continue their day to day delivery. And no matter how much technology you put into someone's home. If there's no one there to respond to it whether that be through a call center as a chatbot or you need a physical response because somebody has fallen on the floor somebody's there and they're hurt or they just need triaged and put back to bed we just need to be recognizing those those valuable services that that enable that really wrap around care. And and I think that's one area of business, the responder services that, you know, needs a bit more work. It needs to be joined up with our emergency services. It needs to be more joined up with the other community assets um, in the communities. And I think that's where um, Delta wellbeing that's how they achieved those remarkable things because their responder services were working with the community volunteers, they were working with delivery services, they were working with lots of different medication and delivery services and I think that's how they achieved such an incredible um, output to some of the work that they did in the pandemic.
0: Thank you and I think that's that's important that we can hope that the pandemic has been incredibly difficult but there are things that we may keep uh, and push certain agendas forward. And hopefully the recognition of the wider services around technology is something that we can cling on to and and take forward. I just wanted to ask you to reflect maybe on what else do you think the sector has learned from the pandemic and will be hopefully taking forward? Because looking at our findings, you know, the the pandemic has been a huge accelerator in terms of technology across the social care sector.
2: I think we all know the word interoperability. And I think when we had our conference in, um, in March, it came across loud and clear. We need to escalate, grow at scale, the analog to digital shift and not be frightened of that, and, but not do like for like. We learned in the pandemic that there was some fabulous new services. Let's not just replace an analog piece of kit. With a digital piece of kit let's use the digital capabilities to change the service offer and i think we learned that loud and clear because we had to change the service offer and then the ones that the services that were using digital new internet of things some great digital solutions that then could do lots of different things to deliver different outcomes for the people that they serve and i think what we did learn was personalization that it's good to be thinking about proactive and preventative care, but our recent work with the ADAS Commission really taught us when we looked under the bonnet of social care, what does personalisation really mean? Um, And I think there's some key, key things in there about owning your own care record is really important, but what do you do with it? I think there's an importance to proactive and preventative care that can be enabled by digital solutions and i think we we need to really think of how we start to think in a personalized way um, and deliver better outcomes for people always Um, and digital just gives us a great platform to be able to do that so i think that's what i would recommend that we learn from the pandemic and take that forward and and continue the collaboration. For the first time ever, we've been seeing um, the tech sector. I've sat on all the national committees. I've spoke to Lord Bethel, you know, the Under Secretary of State, who said, where's this sector been? This is fantastic. And so it's raised profile for for technology enabled care services. But I think we need to be a little bit more ambitious and continue our collaborations and continue the work at the pace and scale that we did within the pandemic.
0: I think that's something that in some of our early consultations there was a sort of hesitancy among some commissioners around sort of analogue to digital shift that it was almost too big a problem. <laughs> for them to deal with or they're waiting for the some guidance from government or some funding from government or a, a key piece of kit that's gonna you know solve all the problems that's gonna literally replace like for like and potentially the pandemic has forced that agenda for you know beyond those sort of discussions.
2: We've done a lot of work during COVID around supporting commissioners, supporting service providers about what we mean about analogue to digital, what, what they mean about different protocols, BS5013 and on it goes. And it's really, really confusing when you have a commissioner procuring services. What does it all mean? And does it give me longevity? Is it? Is it gonna be digital? Will it work in the new world? So we've done lots and lots. There was about 39 pieces of different relevant guidance, not just on analog to digital, but everything the tech services needed in terms of staff, PPE, whatever they was causing it, said it was a problem. We come back with some um, relevant guidance. Now our ongoing work from now until Christmas is to embed digital standards into our quality standards framework, not just for services, so they recognise that, but also to mandate uh, and regulate against the the suppliers that are supplying the kit, the analogue to kit. So we're also writing commissioner's guidance so that they know um, exactly what to procure and why, and what can be trusted. And also we're writing specifications to support the tech sector out there is the move from the analogue to digital shift. Is the go to new platforms, digital platforms, are they truly digital? Now we've seen a massive change from pre-COVID to during COVID, the ambition for some of our service providers and commissioners to move to digital, And what we're out there in the communities every day of the week—it's been um, super—is supporting that transition. So if there's anyone listening to the podcast, we're available with all the resources there to help you on that journey because it's not an easy one to take, but it's a well worth journey um, if you get it right. So TSA would be able to support any of our, you know, service offers or any of the commissioners, commissioners get really, really um, confused, confused about what's needed to, needed to be done.
0: And I don't know if this is an area, but it, uh, the TSA are, are looking at to create guidance on, but something that, that came from the findings was a real interest in mainstream technologies and the challenge then being around the sort of standards and regulation of those pieces of kit that aren't Care-specific technologies, but are being deployed in caring contexts, and how how can a commissioner navigate that terrain, which might open themselves up to complexities that they perhaps hadn't
2: foreseen? We have some senior leadership people who understand standards and understand interoperability standards, and you say everyday technologies, are they going to work? Um, And we've done a lot of work on standardisation of the analogue to digital journey, but also the Internet of Things. We're working really closely with our colleagues in NHSX on their interoperability programmes, on their DTAC standards and making sure that they're embedded into our quality standards framework. Um, So, yes, that is of interest. And but then it's turning it into plain English. What does it mean when uh, a commissioner, a procurer, or a service provider is looking at this shiny bit of kit and going, what will this do for me? Is it compliant? Will it work over a digital network? All of that advice is there. So the standards are one thing, it's how you apply them in a consistent way and giving our service providers that knowledge and that ability to buy. Um, in a safe way that's going to give them the outcomes that they need for their service users. Thank you. That's really helpful. I think that, again, that outcomes thing
0: is, I think, the thing to really, again, to come back to that should be at the forefront of commissioning decisions, not, oh, that looks whizzy and exciting. And I've heard about another local authority that uses it. Well, why were they using it? What were the outcomes they were trying to achieve? Is that Is that where you want to go? And I think that's the real key thing. I think it's something that the TSA are really strongly um, advocating is that outcomes and that prevention and all those uh, agendas. And I think that's really important to highlight in a a sector where perhaps traditionally risk management might have been the focus around, you know, picking someone they've fallen. Well, we can aspire to better, can not we? We can aspire to well-being outcomes. we can aspire to
2: preventing
0: people from getting to that point of emergency.
2: Yeah, where you see people, you know, continuing to live a happy life as their illnesses progress in communities, if we only meet the need and don't meet their wants as an individual, they're, they're not living fulfilled, happy lives. So one of our ethoses in TSA is to deliver quality outcomes, for the individual, for the carers that serve and support and their families, for the system. It's gotta be what's in it for me for it to work across a whole system. And I think if we all focus on quality outcomes and commissioning for outcomes, we'll start to see the shift. We didn't think about it in that way in COVID, but that's what we did. We had a problem and we all worked together to solve it. And if we use those principles and don't leave them behind, then we will always deliver, we'll co-design, we'll do things around people and how they want to live their lives. And I think technology should be the silent thing in the background, shouldn't it? We're all used to using these Zooms. Now we do it as a matter of course. Let's see if we can deliver care services, enable back technology, and nobody sees the technology anymore. It's just there as part of the day-to-day living. Thank you, Alison. That was, that was really wonderful. Brilliant. And you know, in, in the sector, if we all just focus back on those key things of data, people and partnerships, what a wonderful world it'll be. Um, and it's great for the tech sector. And I just think it's so exciting. We've got a bright, bright future.